Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, hope you're enjoying summer school. Hope you're enjoying the uh, LSE. I think most of you know me by now. Uh, some of you probably too much because you're in my class. Uh, my name is Professor Mick Cox here at the LSE and teaching on summer school. Also happened to be the Director of Strategy and Planning of summer school. Uh, as I said uh, on several occasions, part of, the, part of the function of summer school, apart from getting lots of money out of you guys, is to, uh, is to try and uh, reproduce the LSE experience, as we call it, and I won't go into detail. Um, but the LSE experience also includes the public lecture series, um, and this is the first for this session. And uh, I'm absolutely delighted to invite along a very old friend. He's not very old himself, but he's a very old friend. Uh, Andrew Gamble of the uh, University of Cambridge. I say we go back a long way. I think the first time I met Andrew was back in 1972 in a different place in a different time. Uh, Andrew was then, I think, at the University of Sheffield, where he was for several years, and now uh, is at the uh, University of Cambridge. Andrew has written on many, many aspects of international relations, British politics, Thatcherism, British decline. Some of you would like that. Um, but uh, as we were saying outside, this kind of couple of old lefties from the 68 period, uh, we've been talking about the capitalist crisis for 40 years, and it never happened. And it has, it's happened at last. And we're so surprised that Andrew was even more surprised. He's gone ahead and written a book about it. And um, he's, he's called it uh, very, very challengingly, The Spectre at the Feast, Capitalist Crisis and the Politics of Recession. I shall now shut up and hand you over to the speaker, Andrew Gamble, to talk on the, on the subject for this evening. Give him a very good LSE welcome. Well, thanks very much, Mick, for that introduction, and uh, uh, it's very nice to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Um, uh, I, wh why this is called a summer school, I, I'm not quite sure, given the nature of the English summer, but uh, uh, I'm sure you're surviving it. Um, well, I'm going to, what I want to do is, is talk about uh, uh, what's been happening in the global economy uh, in the last couple of years. And uh, I want to focus on the, the events, on the, uh, on the crisis which erupted in 2007 and 2008, and which has already become a major event in the global political economy. But we still have to ask ourselves, how big a crisis was this? And, how, and what is it going to lead to? What I want to argue in the lecture tonight is that uh, this crisis isn't just a financial upheaval, though it began as a financial upheaval. Um, it has many other ramifications. It goes into economics and politics and ideology. And we also need to think about how to explain it. What kind of ideas are available to us to, uh, to talk about it and to understand what is going on. And what I want to do to start with is just to run through some of the main events of this, of the global financial crisis of 2007-8. It all, it began uh, quite slowly in the summer of 2007, so just around two years ago, when the subprime mortgage problem began to emerge and, and probably many people have never heard the term subprime mortgage before but it became 
very quickly known to everybody. And the subprime mortgage problem in its essence was that there was a whole series of uh, mortgages being lent to, being given to uh, borrowers with relatively poor credit ratings. And in the summer of 2007, rising interest rates in the United States meant that many of these borrowers began to default. And as they began to default, so the ripples spread through the financial system. And one of the first signs that this was going to be serious actually came in the United Kingdom in September 2007 when Northern Rock, which was a, a British uh, bank, which had been a building society, had been a mutual building society, but had become a bank about 10 years before, and had enormously increased its share of the market by aggressive lending practices. And suddenly, in 2007, it ran out of cash, and its share price plummeted, and the response of its depositors was something that hadn't happened in England for 100 years, which was they formed queues, not very orderly queues, outside Northern Rock and uh, demanded their money back. So this was an old-fashioned run on a bank. It's the original meaning of bankruptcy. And it happened in September 2007 with Northern Rock. Um, and even when the government announced that it would provide guarantees and, and that depositors' money was safe, the queues took still some time to disperse. And the collapse of Northern Rock, it was, it was the first sign that this wasn't any ordinary crisis. This was actually going to be a crisis that uh, had wider ramifications than crises in the past. It was the speed with which it happened, and it was the response of the public, and it was the fragile nature of the confidence that was very significant. And then the Federal Reserve in the United States, in the autumn of 2007, it began to aggressively cut interest rates. So interest rates began to tumble in those months. And alongside that, bank after bank in the United States and in Europe began to announce losses. Because suddenly, all the banks were finding that the, uh, many of the assets they had on their books were actually, they actually had to mark them down. They had to mark the value down. They realized they didn't have the, the kind of assets which they had expected. And that was because of this ripple effect spreading from the defaulting on loans in the subprime mortgages, but then spreading onwards into the rest of the financial system. And in January 2008 came the first big stock market crash as the markets began to digest the, it, the implications of what was happening in the uh, in the mortgage sector. And in March 2008, Bear Stearns, one of uh, the leading US investment banks, collapsed. 
Bear Stearns had been one of the main players in uh, the subprime mortgage market. And its collapse then sent further ripples out into the financial system. In July 2008, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the big mortgage lenders in the US, um, which dating back to the, uh, to the 1930s, uh, they had to be rescued subsequently. They had to be nationalized by the US government in order, again, to prevent their collapse. But even so, in the summer of 2008, the so-called credit crunch had been going on for 12 months. And people were worried about it. Um, but everybody thought it was containable. Everybody thought there was no need to, uh, no need to panic. But then panic actually did really begin in September 2008, an extraordinary month which will be studied for long afterwards in, the, in uh, economic history, began with the collapse of Lehman Brothers, an even bigger bank than Bear Stearns, stretching back 170 years. Lehman Brothers collapsed and the federal the, the financial authorities in the US decided not to bail it out. They decided that because it was an investment bank, they would, uh, they would let it go to the wall and that, uh, um, that Lehman Brothers should pay the consequence for having got themselves with so many toxic debts. But Lehman's Brothers' collapse sent a shockwave through the markets and caused a dramatic collapse of confidence, which spread very quickly in a matter of days to all the main financial institutions. And suddenly, the financial authorities on both sides of the Atlantic were looking at the possibility of the collapse of some of the leading banks in the, uh, in the market. And governments had to act very fast indeed in order to stop the whole system coming down. Um, it really was that close. And the, it's like when you take, the, uh, when, when, when you take a, a wall out of a house and suddenly uh, the, uh, the whole house above it starts to shake. And, and you realize the whole thing could, quick, could come down unless you get a, a beam in very quick. And it was a bit like that in September 2008. And the response of the authorities was to, was to go for a major bailout. The US Treasury launched a 700 billion bailout plan, which was then blocked in Congress. And the markets wobbled again um, George Bush, in one of his last acts as president, appeared uh, before Republican congressmen and pleaded with them for the bill to be passed. And he used the memorable phrase, this sucker could go down. Um, he always had a pithy turn of phrase. And, uh, the, uh, and what he meant was the, uh, the whole thing could be lost. And 
Congress uh, swallowed hard and passed the bailout plan. But not before a second stock market collapse had happened, a, a collapse in percentage terms greater than the great crash of 1929. And it was this risk of a general financial collapse which was so serious. Well, in the final months of 2008, there was a succession of bank rescues, of nationalizations, of fiscal stimulus packages around the world as governments scrambled to try and hold the line to stop the, uh, to stop the rot spreading. And by December 2008, US interest rates were at zero to 0.25%. So interest rates had come down to zero UK interest rates were slower to follow, but by March 2009, they too were down um, practically to zero. And in the wake of this, there was a rapid rise in unemployment and in bankruptcies. The financial system was stabilized. It came back from the brink, but at a huge cost in terms of the debts which were piled up which would have to be paid back for the future. And this is now the situation in which we're living. And the, at the uh, G20 summit in London in April 2009, the world's leaders gathered to discuss what could be done to try and rebuild the shattered global economy and the financial system. So how did all this... Uh, how did all this happen, and what were the? Uh, how do? We, how should we understand this? Uh, <coughs> this crisis. The first thing to look at are the immediate causes. It's it's fairly well understood now the actual sequence by which the crisis unfolded and what the underlying problems were. There was a huge amount of overborrowing, and undersaving, both private and public, which had built up not just in one year or two years, but over, over 20 years. Um, and a prime manifestation of this was the subprime mortgages and the, the philosophy which lay behind uh, subprime mortgages. The idea that uh, um, people's credit worthiness wasn't actually a factor for lending people money and that actually the multiples of people's income of, of, of loans which could be offered no longer needed to be three times could, but could be six times. Northern Rock specialized in, um, in loans of 125%, 125% on the, the value of, uh, of houses. There was a rush to uh, provide very attractive competitive deals for people wanting to borrow and not just for houses but for uh, all kinds of consumer purchases and the financial markets over 20 years showed themselves to have enormous ingenuity in devising new financial instruments to which actually kept the boom going kept the lending going kept the uh, kept people spending and put off the day of reckoning. And then too, always in thinking about 
episodes like the one we've just gone through, you have to think about the psychology of the upswing. Uh, Charles Kindleberger has written memorably about um, panics and manias and crashes, and, and J.K. Galbraith in his book, The Great Crash, detailed the way in which the, uh, the pressures built up in the upswing before the Great Crash. And the psychology is remarkably similar in all these financial episodes going back over 200 years, in which uh, at a certain point in the boom, people come to believe that this time things are going to be different and the boom is going to last forever, that, that somehow something has changed and that uh, the boom can go on without check. And so it was this time. Alan Greenspan, chairman of the Federal Reserve, believed that uh, although it was difficult to understand exactly what was going on in the financial markets, he believed that that was a sign of strength, that actually the financial markets had become so sophisticated that uh, no single human mind could, con could uh, understand what was going on. But what it meant was, he said, that uh, the markets could now price any risk. They could now actually understand so well um, that what, what was needed that it had become an, a highly flexible instrument for distributing uh, funds around the global economy and that therefore there was nothing to worry about. Actually, there was a great deal to worry about. This just shows you in simple graphic terms, the, uh, the US public debt from 1968 to 2007. 1968, Vietnam War was in full swing, but US public debt, by later standards, was really quite modest. But look at the steep climb, the, the dip is uh, the first uh, major dip around 1992. That's, the, uh, that's when it reached three trillion. That was what Ross Perot in the American presidential campaign called the three trillion dollar debt and lambasted the older George Bush for having let it come about on his watch. It was on the Reagan and Bush, during the Reagan and Bush administrations that that huge debt was built up. When Clinton came in, for a while, there was a, uh, a deceleration and actually a, a slight reduction in the debt. But then it began to climb again, and under the second George Bush, it climbed up to over $5 trillion. And uh, this graph just shows you house prices, just the the increase in house prices between 1997 and 2005 in a number of countries, 75% increase in the United States, 160% in the UK, 130% in Australia, 145% in Spain, and 185% in Ireland. These are huge increases in such a short period of eight years and clearly were far in excess 
of anything that was happening in the real economy. This is a, this is a classic bubble. When the uh, housing bubble burst, the, the American satirical magazine, The Onion, um, immediately on their front page demanded that the uh, American public be given another bubble to invest in. It was their, it was their constitutional right to have <laughs> another bubble. The, uh, so moving on, how did it happen? Going to a slightly deeper level, look at some of the deeper causes. The first is to look at deregulation in the 1980s. The, uh, the great deregulation of the financial markets, which took place on both sides of the Atlantic. In, in Britain, it was called the Big Bang in 1986, which opened up the city of London uh, to foreign banks and made London the, uh, one of the preeminent financial centers in the world, again, with all the, uh, all the banks chafing under regulatory restrictions in their own, under the, in their own jurisdictions coming to London because the, uh, uh, the, the regulations were so much lighter. And then there are the bubbles. The, uh, in this boom, um, this, this strong period of expansion in the 1990s and into the 21st century, there have been a succession of bubbles, the dot-com bubble, uh, bubbles in various commodities, and then the housing bubble. So it's, the, it's this characteristic of it being a bubble economy. But beyond that, very important too, has been that the boom wouldn't have lasted so long, couldn't have been sustained so long, without some very important developments within the global economy. And one of the most important of these was the emergence of countries like India and China as major global players. And this led to the build-up of huge global imbalances, with uh, huge surpluses being run up by countries like China and by Germany and huge deficits being run up by countries like the United States and the United Kingdom. And those imbalances were fine so long as the economy kept growing. But if there was ever to be a check, then there'd be serious problems. And the final cause here is the new finance. There was a new financial model which came out of the previous crisis, the 1970s, was promoted by new doctrines of neoliberalism and globalization. And at its root, these new doctrines, these new financial doctrines, suggested a new financial model which could provide new type of growth. And at the core of this new finance was the idea of financialization, of, of making every citizen a financial agent, a financial subject, getting people to take on ever more credit, become ever more responsible for um, all the uh, purchases through their, their life that they, that they needed, from university um, fees to hospital expenses and 
and, and uh, as well as as well as housing. And this idea of financialization and of creating the, the financial services industry to provide uh, for these new financial subjects, this was one of the factors which allowed the boom to last as long as it did, but also built up the imbalances and the huge credit overhang. And then long-term causes of this crisis that uh, if you consult economic historians and political scientists and sociologists and international relations scholars, then what you find, of course, are that the sort of events we've just lived through aren't by any means unique, that there have always been economic cycles, there have always been policy cycles, there's always been technological cycles. And a lot of social scientists have spent a lot of time trying to work out the cycles that are most significant in determining the progress of the modern economy over the last 200 years and precisely what drives these cycles. And people like Marx and Schumpeter are some of the big names that have tried to understand exactly what it is that causes these huge fluctuations in uh, economic activity. And similarly, social scientists have paid a lot of attention to the policy cycles, the swing between regulation and deregulation and then back to regulation. And people are asking whether that's the kind of cycle that we're going through again. And behind all this, there are the, the, the technological cycles, the, um, which, which the, the Russian economist Kondratiev, uh, he believed he could, uh, he could discern a 50-year cycle, which was powered by huge new um, technological innovations, which changed the whole way in which the economy operated and led to very rapid growth in the early years of a cycle, followed by uh, crises and a, a major crisis at the end of a cycle, after which there then had to be a major restructuring of the whole economy, both, um, both the economic institutions and political. And then a final, a final thought about how all this happened is that an insight from an American economist, Frank Knight, going back to 1920, where he made a fundamental distinction between uncertainty and risk, um, and argued that very often that, that, that modern societies spend a great deal of their time trying to control risk, trying to measure risk and trying to minimize risk. The whole insurance industry is one example of, of that whole process. But Knight said that uh, whilst that was completely understandable and that without such, uh, such attempts to measure and control risk, we couldn't have any order in the kind of, in the very complicated society which we've created. At the same time, sometimes our attention to risk blinds us to the existence of uncertainty. 
And the problem about uncertainty is that it can't be controlled or forecast or measured. There is within social systems a radical uncertainty which from time to time bursts through and which no amount of planning beforehand can allow for. And one of, our, one of the problems in the way that we design uh, social systems and political systems is that uh, we focus on risk and we don't focus on uncertainty. So what are the consequences of this crisis that we've been through? First of all, the financial meltdown. The crisis exposed the fragility of the financial system. It caused this huge collapse of trust in banks. The banks, for a time, stopped lending altogether. Credit became extremely tight. It's been a huge shock to the system, but the banks are still here. Um, they're regrouping, they're paying bonuses again. The, uh, there are a lot of suggestions that we're going to see a return to <coughs> prudent banking, but it's extraordinary the rearguard action that is being put up to uh, prevent the separation, for instance, of, uh, of uh, retail and investment banking. The very reform which was forced through in the 1930s the Glass-Steagall Act, and which was repealed at the height of the boom in 1999. The second set of consequences is the, that this financial, the financial meltdown has led to an economic meltdown. We're now in a major recession, the most serious since the 1970s. It may turn out to be the most serious since the 1930s. Level of bankruptcies, rising unemployment, and above all, what uh, makes it comparable to the 1930s is the severe risk of deflation, the possibility that prices, instead of uh, rising, might actually, uh, might actually fall. In the Great Depression, in America, prices, the price level fell by about one-third, and that was one of the causes why the recovery took so long in the 1930s. The economic meltdown is already having a huge impact on pensions, on mortgages, on savings. The ripple effects of what happened last year are still spreading out across the, uh, across the global economy. And the, uh, the pain of what happened, um, much of it is still to be felt in the economies of the world. And then the political meltdown. Near the first casualty of this crisis um, appeared to be neoliberalism, but perhaps we should uh, reserve judgment on that because neoliberalism is remarkably, uh, a remarkably resilient doctrine, and there isn't a very clear alternative to neoliberalism which is, uh, which is coming forward. Uh, in previous great crises of the capitalist economy, there have been alternative models, alternative systems of thought, alternative policies which have been articulated. One of the peculiarities of this crisis is the shortage of new ideas that are being 
put forward. Now, this might be a matter of time, and they might, uh, they might come forward in the, in the years ahead. But at the moment, neoliberalism is still the default option. Another feature of the political meltdown is that it shows the perils of incumbency in many, in many states. Um, that incumbent governments find it increasingly hard to hold on, and many have been, uh, many have been swept away. But there isn't a single impact in all countries. In some incumbents, like in uh, in France and 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 Germany, look like uh, actually benefiting from the crisis. But elsewhere, uh, and, and most notably, of course, in the United States last year, being the incumbent was not uh, was not a good place to be. What we can expect is that there won't be a single impact a single uniform impact throughout the world, there will be many different impacts in different, uh, in different national economies. But what we can also expect is an increasing impact on the global balance, the relative positions of the leading powers in the world, the United States, the EU, China, India, Russia, Brazil. These are all going to change in the years ahead. And the crisis will be looked back on uh, quite likely as the moment in which some of these shifts became apparent. And what the crisis also threatens is not just national governments and national institutions, but it also threatens many of the institutions of the global economy itself. How far will this crisis go? Uh, commentators spend a lot of time speculating about whether the current recession will be V-shaped, L-shaped, or W-shaped. Clearly, everybody would like it to be V-shaped because that means you go down very fast and then you come up very fast. L-shaped is, uh, is more what the Great Depression of the 30s was like. It, it went down and then it took a very long time to come up. So it was, you had a flat bumping along below trend growth for a very long period. A W-shaped recession is what uh, a lot of people in the United States and in Europe are speculating that we may be facing, that we may actually, after the uh, recovery in the, uh, over the spring and, and early summer of this year, that we could be facing another um, downward movement in, uh, in this coming autumn. We don't know that yet. But certainly, if you compare this crisis with earlier crises, with the Great Depression or with the 1970s stagflation, it's clearly different from both of those, crises, those periods of crisis. But what it shares with them is the fact that the effects of this crisis are not likely to be short-lived. Because the crisis has happened in the financial heartlands of global capitalism and not on the periphery, uh, it's going to take a very long time to work through some of these effects. There can't be any quick snapping back into, uh, into normality. The questions that are raised are how quickly the financial system can be rebuilt, whether the openness of the global economy, which was so important to economic growth of the last 20 years, whether that can be 
preserved in the face of the domestic pressures which governments are going to face over the next few years and the question of whether deflation can be avoided without creating inflation, whether green shoots um, are not going to turn into false dawns. And then finally let's think about uh, a number of ways, a number of ideas that are being canvassed of what should be done about the crisis, the current political debate. One position, which was that of the Republicans that George Bush uh, addressed in September last year, is the argument that the crisis should be allowed to take its course, that irresponsibility should be punished, there should be no bailouts for failed banks, for failed companies, there should be no extension of the state, no socialism. The sight of Hank Paulson standing up, the former chairman of Goldman Sachs, and announcing the uh, nationalization of leading American banks was deeply uh, disturbing to many, um, many U.S. Republicans. The problem um, for this school of thought is that there isn't too... Uh, there's, there's far too much regulation rather than too little regulation. On the, the anarcho-capitalist libertarian fringes of this position, there are people who argue for the abolition of central banks altogether on the grounds that central banks just make problems worse and that the market economy would be much better off um, managing its own affairs in its own, uh, in its own way. So what these, uh, what these people want are market solutions, not government solutions, and they want uh, new incentives for saving, major tax cuts in order to get people back saving again. The second position is, argues that the key need is still to prevent deflation. It's still to prevent what happened in the 1930s. And to do that, there needs liquidity has to be increased, interest rates slashed, banks recapitalized, quantitative easing, which means printing money, pumping money into the economy in order to stop a, uh, a downward spiral of prices. The aim is to provide credit for small businesses, to expand home loans, to protect jobs and incomes. In, in other words, to hold the line. This has been the policy which the British and American governments have been following. Um, since the end of, end of last year. And it's been having some effects, but as I say, at a huge cost. And the question is, uh, and there are beginning to be, particularly in the United States, questions about this strategy and whether it's working, whether it's delivering, um, and whether the, uh, whether the costs of it, as the costs increasingly are going to come home to the American taxpayer and to the British taxpayer, whether these costs can be born. And then the uh, more adventurous um, set of policies, the argument that what needs to be done is to promote a new deal. Roosevelt's new deal in the 1930s um, is still iconic for, um, uh, for progressives. The idea here would be that Banks and financial services need to be re-regulated. There needs to be a, a new, tough regulatory system in place to stop the kind of excesses which have been experienced over the last 20 years. Income and assets need to be redistributed to 
uh, reduce the huge inequalities that have been built up in the, over the last, again, over the last 20 years in order to get spending levels back up. And there needs to be a whole new program of social investment in new infrastructure, new technologies. Green technologies are particularly favored at the present time. An investment too in education and skills, but accompanying all this in order to make it affordable, there has to be considerable austerity and lower consumption lower personal consumption, lower private consumption to reduce debt. And in current political circumstances where everybody is so used to spending and to consuming, this is a hard sell. And a fourth set of ideas are about safeguarding the global economy, arguing that the real priority isn't so much on the domestic front but is looking at what's happening on the, with the global economy. And here, people argue that there has to be a new financial architecture. We have to sort of think big in the way that uh, uh, the international community thought big after 1945 and created the uh, institutions, the global institutions of the post-war era. Now, many of those institutions are still, of course, in place, but the argument now is that there needs to be a change in the balance of these institutions. There has to be a reform of the IMF, of the WTO, of the World Bank, to reflect the changing balance of economic and political power in the world economy. There have to be new rules for multilateral trading order and perhaps, crucially, a new, a new international currency regime, which means, of course, questioning the status of the dollar. None of that's going to be very easy. Um, Professor Cox, I'm sure, will be telling you all about how difficult it will be uh, in, his, in the lecture that he is going to be giving to you next week. The, uh, so what's the outlook? The outlook is... Uh, we can either think... Of, the outlook could either be one of that we're living through a period of fundamental change in which nothing is ever going to be quite the same again and that people will look back on this as a, as a, as a big watershed moment. Or it is conceivable that we could return to business as usual. I've been arguing in this lecture that I think it's more, we're much more likely to be towards the end of fundamental change than we are to business as usual. But the point about a crisis like this is that we don't really know um, that these events are so big um, that we don't actually fully understand them. The Queen, when she visited the London School of Economics, uh, um, she... Uh, said you wouldn't mention <laughs> the, the, when, when she visited the London School of Economics, she said that... Uh, um, she, she asked, if these things were so large, why did no one, um, why was no one aware of them? And that's a very good question because, and the fact that they are so large is, is probably why nobody understood them and nobody, um, and, and, and why we still don't really understand 
exactly what is happening or how big uh, some of these changes can be. What we can do is look at many of the obstacles to recovery. Many of these obstacles are political obstacles because they are about the way in which the global economy is organized and the balance of power between states. And what we can also look at is the rise of anti-politics and the rise of populist and nationalist <coughs> movements around the world. The, one of the great dangers of a period of this kind, when we get such a major shock to the uh, global economic system, is that all kinds of uh, new political responses can emerge. Um, and again, we shouldn't look at this short term. The fact that uh, we've got through um, the first half of this year uh, without major new shocks occurring in the global economy doesn't mean that there aren't a lot more shocks in store in the, in the years ahead because there's been a fundamental alteration of many of the fundamentals of this, uh, of this economy and of, of the political system. And these are the real specters at the feast, the feast, the long feast of consumption, the long feast of spending, which ended definitively in the financial crisis of 2008. But whether these uh, specters can be banished, whether the specters from the 1930s can be banished in the future it depends on politics and it depends on what people do and what people, the decisions which people take and not just in one country but in many countries and it's the degree of cooperation between countries to solve these problems that will determine in the end uh, what transpires. Thanks very much. I knew he would mention the Queen, and you were very bad to do that, Andrew, but I will forgive you. Um, the Queen never will. Uh, one always has to feel sorry for that poor LSE economist who was asked the question. I'm told he's still got a job. Um, okay, I think we clearly have time for Q&A. Could the people with the microphones, the indication that the LSE has joined the 21st century, uh, good. Okay, we can take a few questions, I think. Let's start. Who wants to begin? Who wants to kick off? There's an enthusiastic young man down here. And we'll start with him. Right. Please, sir. Right. Uh, Professor Campbell, I have a, a couple of questions. One, uh, the situation definitely demands a change in policy. And uh, from what it seems that there is a change, one, towards the socialist side by the major economies, UK and the US and the EU, but would that be acceptable in the long term or would the New Deal, the policy that the New Deal of uh, Roosevelt, suggest, that Roosevelt suggested, be a better option? The other, that you talked about the relative imbalance uh, in the major and the emerging economies, that is particularly India and China. As far as these two countries are concerned, they are probably benefiting from this recession. Yes, the ripples are felt to the extent um, that Foreign investment seems to have declined, but overall they are benefiting for their own policies are 
based on mixed economy where the state plays a major role. So how do the major economies, UK, US, the EU, uh, look to tackle these problems? Okay, thank you very much. We'll take this too there, Andrew. Do you want to take this straight away? Yeah. Another hand can go up. I can pick one up yeah. upstairs. Yeah. I think the... the uh, Is that all? Okay. Okay. Sorry. Um, I think what, what, what's, in, what's interesting is that the, uh, the solution to the crisis is clearly, um, has clearly got to come through um, greater international cooperation. And everybody understands that. But then they understood that in the 1930s. And the, the World Economic Conference that was held in the 1930s, there was lots of uh, pious talk about the need for everyone to cooperate, and then everyone went home and, uh, and just slapped on protectionism. And the, and the problem of getting agreement between the major countries after such a major dislocation like this is that every one of the major countries has slightly different uh, interests, um, and, and sometimes uh, quite that there's quite large differences of interest. And so the dip, these are very complex international negotiations as a result. And the, um, so the, the problem is that uh, every state has to operate on, on two levels. There is, there is what they're doing in, in their national, in, in national terms, in deciding uh, whether they're going to re-regulate, whether they're going to go for a social investment strategy, uh, or whether they're going to um, stand back and, and, and hope that the, the economy rights itself. But they also have to have a policy at the global level, at the international level. They have to have a policy for these international negotiations over what is to be the shape of the global economy going forward. How can the prosperity be maintained? How can the, the growth of trade be maintained? How can all the members of the international community being given sufficient incentives not actually to go back into protectionism. And the difficulty is that on every national government, uh, every national government is going to face enormous pressure from their, um, from their national electorates and their, their national uh, interest groups to actually protect uh, home uh, domestic jobs and, and, and domestic incomes. And, the, uh, and therefore, they're going to find it very difficult to make the kind of concessions that are going to be needed in order to get global agreements um, at, uh, established. And that seems, I mean, it's a familiar problem in international relations. It's a familiar, it's a, it's a familiar problem from the 1930s. It doesn't but, but in, in describing it doesn't make it any, any easier to, to, to solve. And I, and I think it's the, uh, that that's the real problem, that, the, that some countries will want greater regulation, other countries will want lesser regulation, and, it's, and what actually there has, there has to be some coming together on a, a, a minimum set of, of ideas which will actually uh, help the global economy through this. Okay, there was a lady here, and then I'll take a gentleman up there in the balcony. Yeah, please. Um, okay, I have two questions, and the first one is uh, more based on the housing finance system. And I'm basing my question on Polanyi's idea of great transformation. And 
my question to you is now, the housing finance system of the U.S. was supposed to be the, or was popular for the best working system in the world. And my question would be to you, due to Polanyi who said that embedded liberalism is working and is kind of overcoming neoliberalism ideas, would you say that the financialization um, kind of goes hand in hand with commodifying individuals and that also the deregulation, meaning the private privatization of Fannie, uh, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae kind of was the main courses for the crisis so that the state kind of went back too far and that the self-regulating market was the main problem then because before that, after the New Deal of Roosevelt, when the system built up, the state owned, uh, well, when they were founded, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Yeah. So that is my first question, right. and the okay. second... Quick one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the second is quick. Um, do you think that we swing back from a, uh, to a more positivist interventionary state? Because right. we had a more regulatory one. Okay, right. Okay. 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 Yeah, well, that's a very interesting question. I mean, I, I think one of the problems is that the... Uh, um, if you look back at the last big crisis, the 1970s crisis, I mean... That was the crisis of, of embedded liberalism. And out, and, and out of that came the, um, the ideas and the policies and the institutions which uh, have then led us up to this, this uh, current crisis. But, but at the time, the neoliberal solutions were actually a way of restarting economic growth. And, and so, that, so, so the thing is very complex. That certainly in, in Polanyian terms, that was a, a phase of deregulation after the phase of regulation. And the question now is, yes, whether are, are we going to co go back now to a phase of much greater regulation? Um, I think that's a question of politics. I mean, I don't, I don't believe that cycles go in, in, an, automatic, um, in an automatic sequence. Um, and whether there is to be a new phase of tighter regulation, uh, particularly in countries like the US and the UK, which deregulated so far, um, I think is going to be a matter of the political forces within them. And so in the United States, a lot depends on the success or otherwise of the Obama administration. Clearly, the Obama administration is pushing in that direction, but there is very considerable opposition already building up to the to the initiatives which he's putting forward. So he's, he's walking a tightrope. And it's, uh, it's certainly possible that he is, is going to succeed. But um, the nature of politics is, is that there is a, clearly a lot of un, uncertainty. And, and it can't be, uh, it's, it's not a foregone conclusion. And it's even, going back to the, the question I was, uh, the, the previous question, um, it's even less certain at the international level whether the United States will, would support the kind of re-regulation at the international level uh, which many other countries might, uh, might well demand. I mean, there's, there's some countries in, in the world which uh, didn't deregulate. I mean, Canada actually is one of the countries which didn't actually deregulate its banking system and as a result had... Uh, suffered much smaller effects from the financial crisis itself. But of course, Canada is suffering from the general fallout from the, ec the economic meltdown that's followed the financial meltdown. So that even the countries which, which uh, behaved responsibly 
or more responsibly and didn't deregulate, they still get caught up in, 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 this, uh, in this mess. So I, I think the, the, the really interesting thing going forward, I mean, I think there's going to be enormous political battles over this question of regulation and, and, and of, of how far the state it needs to be extended in order to protect to protect people and there will be a lot of forces pushing one way but there's also going to be a lot of forces pushing the other and we shouldn't uh, so, and, and I think it's not a foregone conclusion at this point There's a gentleman waiting up there yeah. patiently sir Yeah, thanks uh, for an interesting lecture uh, maybe I didn't listen in the macro lessons uh, before but uh, if uh, we have had about 10 years of uh, even unreasonable growth now what is so bad, in essence, about some deflation? <laughs> What's wrong with deflation, Andrew? Well, um, a, 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 a real deflation, like the one in the 1930s, would be a disaster. Um, because what, what you get with, uh, with a real deflation is that um, uh, prices fall so much and wages fall so much that uh, confidence just evaporates, and people um, no longer are uh, are no longer uh, willing to take risks or to spend, and you get into a, a, a deep depressive cycle, which is what happened in the in the 1930s. So a a, a really serious deflation on that scale um, would be a very big problem. Um, a uh, a, a milder check, yes, I mean, I think during the boom, lots of people were saying there, had, there needed to be a slowing down, that the, the housing market needed to be cooled down, there needed to be a soft landing, people used to talk about. Um, there needed to be a deceleration of the, uh, the, 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 the growth of, of credit. Um, and... Uh, if governments knew how to, and financial authorities knew how to engineer that, then of course that's what they do. The problem with this crisis, um, I mean, Alan Greenspan used to pride himself that um, when that, that you could allow bubbles to to develop in the global economy, and that the financial authorities knew enough to uh, burst the bubble without destabilising the whole system. And uh, that's what he thought he did with the Asian financial crisis in 1997 and with the dot-com dot crisis in 2000 and so on. But the, the crisis of 2008 was a systemic crisis of the whole system which couldn't be isolated and which, uh, which therefore had these very serious effects. So that the, the problem is that um, um, what they've what the authorities have been forced to do is to, in order to stop this crisis turning into a major deflation, they've had actually to pump huge liquidity in and run up vast debts um, in order to stabilize the system. And, and, and so that's the problem, really, that they don't actually, they don't actually have the, the knowledge or the, or, the, or the skill actually to have just a, a small deflation and so they've had, to, they've had to guard against a major deflation, and the consequence of that is that they may therefore be laying the seeds for a future major inflation um, in the years ahead. 
I don't think he's convinced by the answer, but he'll have to put up with that one. There was a gentleman up here. Who had a, yeah, you got the mic. Yeah, please. Have you uh, got the mic back? Um, I have noticed that um, you talked about a um, severe risk of deflation as a possible consequence, but shouldn't current economy worry more about um, hyperinflation? I mean, for example, in the U.S., um, government is keep printing money and Fed is just spend um, yeah. two third trillion dollar to buy a, like a government bonds and now they are talking about expanding that budget up to 1.4 trillion dollars so I just think that that too sudden and vigorous action to provide more money to the market could be a strong indication of inflation so um, could you just like uh, elaborate more on that deflation part yeah okay Andrew. yeah Good. Well, it, I mean, it follows, it, it, it follows on quite, ni quite neatly. Um, the, I think the, the difficulty is um, that, that, that you're right. The, 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 the way that the, the danger of deflation has been combated raises the serious risk of uh, very rapid inflation in uh, a year, two years' time. And, the, uh, and then the problem would be, well, in order to counter that inflationary problem, the government might then have to uh, um, deflate the economy very severely. Um, but if it, did, if it were to do that, then that would intensify the, uh, um, the recession. And, and, and this is, the, this is the, the familiar rock and a hard place of macroeconomic policy. Only this time, it's, we're not talking about um, we're not, we're not talking about managing the economy within fairly uh, uh, narrow bands. It's actually um, quite serious extremes. And, and, and this is what means that governments are playing for quite, uh, for quite high stakes. And, and, and when Ben Bernanke at the Federal Reserve um, uh, uh, authorized the policy of quantitative easing and, and, and the, the uh, and, and um, also sanctioned the, the, the uh, Treasury, the American Treasury f sanctioned the, the huge fiscal stimuluses. I mean, what they were doing was saying, we have to stop the risk of deflation at all costs. Um, but they, were also, they, they are very well aware of the risks they are running with the US economy and therefore with the global economy going forward. And, and the whole thing is premised upon the rest of the world being willing to continue to buy American bonds. And you know, if, if at any time the rest of the world decided it wasn't so keen on holding American bonds, then of course the, the, the ramifications of that are enormous. And, and this seems to me the situation that we're, we're in, that the, um, at the moment the uh, economic policy is swing the needle of economic policy is swinging around um, and what governments are doing is firefighting they're, they're trying to deal with the immediate problem but then that creates a different problem further down the line and then they'll have to address that and it's, it's trying to keep all the balls in the air and hoping that the whole thing doesn't go down I, I got <coughs> the microphone is up here I've got a microphone here and I've got a microphone here so can we just take three quick questions together and then I'll let Andrew, and then after that there's a book signing, but you will have to pay for the book because we still live under capitalism, you may have noticed. And he'll be doing a book signing outside, and then there'll be a reception upstairs on the fifth floor where the drink is free. <coughs> Although you have paid for it indirectly. However, uh, so to speak. 
Now, where's that? the lady up here, please? Yeah, um, thanks. Maybe this is a far-fetched scenario. But a quick one too, please. Yeah. yeah. Maybe this is a far-fetched scenario, but I've heard voices argue for this. Uh, what's the threat the crisis poses to wor or world peace? Is there oh, potential question. conflict, world conflict? Right, good. World peace, what's the consequences? Uh, yeah, gentleman here. Yeah, it seems... Uh, I have to push a button. Uh, it seems incredible that the banks are pushing back against regulation. Do they really believe the problem was they were re too regulated over the last 20 years? And what's the real reason? And what is the specter at the feast? <laughs> okay. Hey, hey, that's a sneaky question, that last one. <laughs> he thinks there's an incipient communist up here <laughs> on the stage. I can see. Maybe so. Who knows? It is the LSE. And uh, gentlemen in stripes. Oh, do you think there are any early indicators of a crisis, such as um, a rapid increase in stock prices or <coughs> an unreasonably high uh, economic growth uh, or uh, high oil, oil prices? Oh, okay, great. We'll take all three to question, and then Andrew will wrap up then, okay? Yeah. yeah. Okay, um, well, yeah, socialism on the fifth floor, clearly, but um, yeah. on, uh, socialism in one on world peace, um, yes, I mean, I... I don't think there's an immediate danger, immediate threat, but um, the 1930s should give us, uh, give us pause. I mean, the 1930s is the, is the classic example of what happens when everything goes wrong. And uh, of, uh, uh, if, 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 if the world breaks up into um, protectionist blocks, then uh, the danger of those blocks then militarizing and of uh, uh, conflict occurring between those blocks uh, that's a, a serious um, a serious possibility it uh, I don't think there's any immediate threat of that but the fact that it has happened before means that we can't uh, we can't simply dismiss it um, and it's something I think what we're more likely to see is um, an increase in the so-called resource wars that um, we, we've already had, uh, there have already been examples of. I think there's going to be an increasing, uh, th th there'll be flashpoints and there'll be tensions around uh, uh, certain, uh, certain areas and certain issues. Um, but it, it I think what it underlines is the need for, but, uh, unless some ways can be found of having a political negotiation about the, the shape of the global economy and the shape of the global political order, unless uh, we can make serious progress on that, then we do risk the possibility that, uh, um, that differences may become um, military conflicts in the future. On bank regulation, well, yes, I mean, it, it is extraordinary what uh, banks do believe, but um, they do seem to believe it. So, uh, um, and, and the, there still is a, uh, a very strong set of beliefs that actually uh, the, the problem is that banks uh, were uh, had were, were too severely regulated, or were 
regulated in inefficiently rather than that they were too lightly regulated. And, um, and there's going to be a lot of, uh, there'll be a lot of people arguing for, um, uh, for, for trying to return the banking system to uh, where it was before. And one of, the, one of the reasons for that is that, say, it goes back to this thing that, that nobody actually has a very good idea of what an alternative growth model is going to look like. The, um, so that there is a sense in which, I mean, if you take the United Kingdom, for instance, nobody is quite sure uh, how the United Kingdom economy is going to manage with a much smaller financial services sector. What is actually going to come in and fill the... Uh, and, 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 and fill the gap. So there is, a, there is a huge nervousness, you see it in the reactions of the British government, to imagining a future in which there is much tighter uh, bank regulation and therefore many foreign banks no longer want to, uh, um, uh, no longer want to uh, cite in London. And that's the, that's the difficulty. Um, as to what the the spectre at the feast is um, well. The book the book describes a number of spectres, um, and uh, two of uh, but but the, the main spectre is is the is, is the threat of uh, this becoming a full blown um, capitalist uh, crisis. Uh, but the other spectre, I think, which which looms behind this and which I think is a very serious spectre, is the spectre of uh, of climate change, because one of the uh, um, one of the problems in which the way the global economy is organized is that it is uh, leading to a uh, destruction of the environment, destruction of the biosphere in a way which uh, threatens the whole human species. And the problems of any solution to this crisis which does not address these longer term threats um, doesn't really begin to, uh, um, to address the crisis at all. And finally, the the question. I'm sorry, the question on oil prices. If you just repeat the. Were there any early, oh, early indicators, indicators of prices to come? Andrew? Yeah. Um, of, of of the crisis of the 2008 crisis. Yeah. Well, yes, there were. I mean, th there were indicators, and there were many people that actually warned about the crisis. There were some people who were very. Uh, perceptive, they weren't uh, listened. The 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 Pope warned about the crisis in 1983, but um, <laughs> I always um, like that man. I must say, um, but, uh, but the um, but no, there were there were a number of people. If you read Susan Strange's books, I mean Susan Strange's Susan Strange's book on Mad Money and on uh, casino capitalism. I mean, uh, there were a number of people, and there were a number of people in the markets that were making very a, a lot of warnings and, and there were signs of the overheating but the problem was uh, and, and it's always this same problem in markets do you take these warnings seriously um, there were uh, there were any number of financial newsletters uh, prophesying doom you could pick them up from 1996 onwards saying that the world economy was going to go off a cliff for next year if you'd taken the advice um, and, and stopped investing, you'd be a lot poorer. 
And that's the view the markets took. People went on investing because people judged on balance that the market was more likely to go up than down. And, and it's, it's because nobody can actually forecast when the market turns down that actually these, that's what gives these booms their huge force on, in the upswing. But it also means that once the market does turn, once there is the check, then the thing goes down at a, at, a, at a huge rate. And that's been true of every major financial crisis going back to the South Sea bubble in 1720. And on that South Sea bubble note, we will end. Thank you.